Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Marian Deschmick about her excellent new book, Max Lieberman, Modern Art in Modern Germany, published by Rutledge in 2015. Dr. Deschmick, hello, and welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Good uh, to hear from you. Uh, good to hear from you. Good morning. Um, thank you for joining us so early. Uh, early riser, not yeah. a problem. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, Dr. Deschmick, we normally like to begin these interviews with hearing a little bit about yourself. So if you could take a minute and tell us about your background, that would be great. Well, I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and I did my undergraduate work at UCLA, and I did my graduate studies, my MA, MPhil, and PhD at Columbia University. Uh, I had some fantastic high school teachers uh, that really drove my interest in history. They were just amazing, and I think that sparked my lifelong interest. And uh, I continued it really throughout my entire life now when I look back in all these decades of studying history but still being so interested in it. Uh, I had some fantastic professors both at UCLA as well as at Columbia with whom I studied. Uh, I studied with uh, the late Eugene Weber, uh, who's a well-known French historian, intellectual historian, uh, Peter Lohenberg in German history, and uh, the late Eugene Anderson, also in German history. Uh, I had a wonderful Western Civ teacher who was infinitely wealthy, and he taught about 500 students per class each year for $1 a year. He would sit on the podium of a big auditorium and just hold forth. He was just brilliant. And I think he brought in a lot of history majors as a result Mm -hmm. of his fantastic lecturing. So I think I got a good background in history, uh, and I minored in art history both uh, at the undergraduate level as well as the graduate level. I came to Columbia primarily to study with a particular professor whose book I had read as an undergraduate. And the professor's name was Fritz Stern, who unfortunately passed away last year, uh, but he lived to the ripe old age of 90 and led a very full uh, and really, in many ways, wonderful life. And he wrote uh, a book that's still in print. It was his doctoral dissertation that was published in the uh, late 1950s and then published as a book in the 60s, but it's been, after revisions, been in print ever since, and it's still used by a lot of um, undergraduate and graduate German history courses, and the book is um, uh, The Politics of Cultural Despair, and some of your listeners may have heard of it or possibly may have read it. I would highly recommend it. It's an intellectual history of three middling uh, intellectuals spanning the mid-19th century through the mid-20th century and how um, illiberalism, the ideas of anti-modernism, anti-Semitism, um, really kind of infiltrate a lot of different cultural circles and how it becomes a kind of background for uh, Nazism and Nazi thought. And it's written like a novel. It's so beautifully written. So that was the book that kind of inspired me to try to be as half a good writer as uh, Professor Stern. I was lucky to be admitted into the program, and I was lucky to have him as what the Germans called my doctor father or my PhD advisor. And it's with him I studied and wrote my dissertation. I lived in New York to do my graduate work before getting married and coming down to the Washington, D.C. area. And I was lucky to be able to uh, get a job teaching both German history and European history, cultural history, and uh, German art history at George Mason University, where I taught for over four decades, a very, very long time. Mm 
and uh, it was a great experience. I had wonderful students, both undergraduate and graduate, uh, with whom some of whom I'm still in contact long after they have finished their program. So that's, in a nutshell, my background. And um, well, thank any you. other questions, I'd be happy to answer. <laughs> um, well, thank you for that. I could certainly agree with you on the politics of cultural despair uh, for all our listeners. Uh, anybody really interested in modern German history really should read that book. Um, so let's turn to your book. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating oh. book. Um, I got the chance over the last couple of weeks to read it. Um, so why don't you tell us a little about how you came to write about Max Liebermann? Okay. Well, uh, I don't know if you read the acknowledgments or introduction, but I was, my interest in Max Liebermann and in German art more generally was sparked by a course that I had taken as an undergraduate at UCLA with Eugene Weber. He taught a uh, one year, two semester course on the intellectual history of modern Europe, 19th and 20th centuries. And we had a number of readings, but he also had assigned a textbook. And the textbook, which may still be in print at some later edition, I'm not quite sure, but the textbook was written by George Mossy. George Mossy was a scion of a very wealthy uh, Berlin publishing family. I didn't know that at the time, uh, but he emigrated to the United States from Nazi Germany and taught for many, many years at the University of Wisconsin, where he was one of the most popular professors there. He published many books, uh, including books related to the themes that uh, Fritz Stern published about intellectual history, the rise of Nazism, the rise of fascism. But he also published this textbook uh, called, I think, Modern European History. It was a bland title. I don't even recall the title of it. And it was it was quite well written. It, I wouldn't call it stellar, but it was fine. But what struck me about the book was it didn't have many illustrations. You would think a book on cultural, intellectual history would have illustrations. It had a few. Among them, uh, a painting by Max Liebermann, a painting, uh, a graphic work, I think, by Kate Kollwitz, another painting by an artist, another German artist, by the name of Hans Baluschek, I said, who the heck are these guys? And one gal, I had never heard of any of them. I was thinking, where's Renoir? Where's Monet? You know, the famous 19th century Impressionist painters, for example. So I said to myself, I should know about these people. Uh, or I, if I shouldn't know about them, maybe I would like to know about them. So I began researching them uh, when I got to graduate school. And I wrote my dissertation on a, a larger aspect, you could say, of the, of the book that ultimately I published on Max Liebermann. I wrote about a whole group of artists, including Hans Baluschek, including uh, Kita Kovitz, including another artist who actually I'm working on now by the name of Fritz von Uda, of how they were represented uh, in Germany at the end of the 19th century. So basically that rather bland textbook sparked my lifelong interest in German art history and German cultural history. And what I found is that, surprisingly, there are very, very few books in English on this topic, more generally on German art history in the late 19th century, uh, but certainly there was nothing on Max Liebermann, which surprised me because the more I got to know about him and know him, I got to know him quite well over the years of studying him, um, he was probably the most important uh, cultural figure at the turn of the century in terms of introducing modern art, modern culture, uh, visual culture to Germany. Uh, he was an ambassador of French art into Germany. He founded several art associations in the 1920s. He became the um, president of the Prussian Academy of Art. And in Germany, most people know him. He's represented at most of the major uh, museums, if not all the major museums in Germany. Uh, there are some works in the United States, but he's really virtually, I should say, unknown uh, in the United States. And that set me on a task to do a biography that wouldn't just describe and discuss his art, which much of which is really beautiful, but how he was such an important cultural figure, uh, cultural impresario, you might say, uh, in Germany at the late 19th century, and how his ideas created a number of controversies 
transcend art that go into politics, go into uh, cultural debates uh, and all of that. So there was just a lot to, to talk about when writing about Lieberman. Excellent. And there's so a, a couple uh, there was a couple of things in there you said I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions on it uh, in a bit. Um, sure. But I want to start with the beginning of the book. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, Lieberman's background, um, how he became interested in art? Um, because I, I, I assume you're right that many of the listeners don't uh, know a whole lot about him. Um, so I think that would That's help, right. <laughs> uh, orient the people well, listening. Sure. Well, Lieberman came from a very extremely wealthy background in Germany. I would liken it to what we would call the 1%, uh, the very, very tippy top of the economic scale. And the reason why his family, and it was very extended family because his father was one of, I think, six or seven brothers, and they founded, uh, they, they lived in East Prussia and they migrated to Berlin, this, the Lieberman family, uh, in the 1820s. And they founded a whole conglomerate of different industries. They were the first family to introduce um, textile printing um, factories into Germany. They imported the famous Prussian blue uh, dyes. They, they had chemical factories. They had uh, steel mills. I mean, they really um, became extremely important in a variety of industries. So Lieberman was born into a, a very wealthy, extended, close-knit family. Um, they were Jewish, and that was a very important factor uh, in both the way Lieberman's art was received and, in general, kind of the circles within which he traveled. Uh, because Germany, while uh, the Jews became assimilated in the 19th century. Uh, it was really only one generation uh, that European Jews in Central Europe, Western Europe, uh, were assimilated into the larger society. Uh, prior to that time, there were a number of restrictions. Uh, a famous example would be uh, the ghettos that had been set up originating in Venice and spreading throughout Europe in the Middle Ages and uh, beyond, really up through the French Revolution, uh, confining Jews to certain parts of a city, uh, enclosing gates and not being able to go out after a certain time or before a certain time on a daily basis, uh, confining uh, Jews to certain professions and not allowing them in many uh, instances to own land. So the emancipation, the legal emancipation of Jews, somewhat like the legal emancipation of African Americans, um, came in the mid-19th century, it, it, it was staggered depending on the area of Germany uh, that one lived because Germany in the 19th century until its unification in 1871 uh, was really a collection of, a, of several different independent principalities ruled by monarchs or princes or landgraves or dukes. So the Liebermans went to Berlin when it was still part of Prussia. It wasn't a larger Germany. But it was also the time of industrialization, beginning really in Great Britain and then spreading throughout Europe in the course of the 19th century. And the Lieberman family were beneficiaries of this. And I think, too, that the proportion of Jews who went into professions that were, you could call them at the time, new in relation to professions uh, that were more traditional, say agricultural or clerical, um, spoke to the fact that they had been restricted from the more traditional uh, profession. So you found Jews in some ways in Germany overrepresented proportion to their numbers in things like manufacturing, banking, uh, the uh, Academic professions, though Jews were restricted, they were not allowed to be full professors, but many of them were uh, teaching professors or research professors. Uh, you found many in the sciences, chemistry, physics. And so it's kind of interesting from a demographic point of view to see how Lieberman's family, being a large family, and in those days people have usually between seven to 13 children on average uh, because there were a number of deaths that occurred because of illnesses. Um, so because of this large family, his own family was very, very gifted. One of his cousins became a 
famous medievalist um, and then went to England and translated uh, many of these parliamentary records from the Middle Ages. Another was a chemist, um, Lieberman felt many of his relatives were much more gifted than he was. But probably of all the Liebermans today, Max Liebermann, the painter, is the most famous. So Liebermann was supposed to enter the family business. That was the expectation. But he really didn't enjoy business. He loved drawing and painting. And so he took these after-school classes with a local painter who really inspired him. And he said to his family, you know, I really don't want to go into business. I want to be a painter. And they were a little distressed because an artist's life can be difficult. If any of us would say to our parents, you know, I think I'm not going to go into IT or accounting. I think I would like to be an artist. Most of our family would say, well, how are you going to make a living? (laughs) Especially in the days when, you know, art was now, the art world itself was changing from being simply a craft where you could study for a while and then maybe get a position in some royal house or in the church, and you would have a kind of guarantee income, that was true of composers as well, to the more freelance system, which we are familiar with today. And that whole process, again, began after the French Revolution. So people in the Lieberman family were pretty worried, thinking, how is he going to make a living? But he persevered. He was a rather stubborn guy. And he went to a uh, art school in Weimar, which was fairly new, and it was a little more, you might call it avant-garde in its teaching methods, because going to art school was rather laborious. You spend about four years starting with, like, drawing fingers, then graduating to hands, and graduating to arms. Uh, it really wouldn't be till the sort of end of your um career in uh, art school, that you would learn to draw from the live model, that you would be allowed to draw other subjects, uh, the nude. Uh, It was a very rigid system, by and large, the academic system. But the Weimar School was a little more liberated, and they had master classes where you could study with individual professors. And Lieberman had a number of professors who had studied in Belgium, and they were primarily history painters, uh, but they were fairly liberal in their teaching methods, and uh, Lieberman felt he got quite a bit out of uh, his years in Weimar. And when he was a student, he traveled with his professor um, to Dusseldorf, which was considered at the time one of the best um, art areas, along with Munich. And he met a Hungarian artist who also was rather unknown in the United States, but he's probably the most famous Hungarian artist in Hungary. His name is uh, Mikhail Mukachi. And he saw a painting of his that depicted... Um, lint pickers, people plucking lint off of cloth that they then used um, because there were sort of, uh, fabric shortages um, during the 1848 revolutions. And he saw this picture, which we would consider a rather genre picture, very dark, um, very traditional. But for Lieberman, this was eye-awakening. He really felt this was the kind of art he wanted to do. And his very first painting that Lieberman painted, and he was in his early 20s, was a painting very much based on Mukachi's painting called The Goose Pluckers, which, again, is a theme that most people would think that doesn't sound like a very (laughs) avant-garde subject. But people looked at it and said, oh, my God, this is horrible. Why would you paint a picture of goose pluckers? Now, goose pluckers are kind of an interesting group. They're usually peasants who do this on the side during a particular season during the year when the goose down starts coming out of of the geese. They use the goose down for bedding. And um, every bride in part of her dowry uh, should have, if she's lucky, should have a goose down um, comforter. So that's what these goose pluckers did, and it's a messy business. And Lieberman's painting got a lot of buzz when it was exhibited. It was exhibited in Hamburg. It was bought right away by a wealthy collector for about the equivalent of, well, it was around 3,000 marks, but that would be the equivalent of almost 
a year's salary of, say, a lower middle class worker. So Lieberman, you know, was off to a great start as a young painter. He didn't need the money because he came from a wealthy family, but he was very bourgeois in his attitudes about money and about wealth and about work, I would say, because he felt he needs to earn his own money. He was very proud throughout his life when his paintings commanded high prices, uh, and he kind of could refute his father's initial dubious uh, attitude about art in general. Uh, his parents weren't particularly interested in the fine arts. He had an uncle that was, uh, but he did prove them wrong that, you see, I can earn money by selling paintings. So this painting got a lot of publicity, and it enabled him then to travel to France. He really wanted to meet uh, one of the most famous French artists of the time, Francois Millet, who was living in Barbizon, an artist colony outside Paris. Unfortunately for Lieberman, um, Millet died just before he got to meet him. But probably Millet wouldn't have wanted to meet Lieberman anyway. One has to remember that when Lieberman traveled to France, it was a year after the Franco-Prussian War. Not a good time for, in German French relations. The French hated the Germans. The Germans were quite pleased with having won the war. And so a lot of French artists refused to even interact with any German painter whatsoever. Uh, most of Lieberman's friends in France, and he stayed in Paris for five years, uh, were other foreigners and Germans rather and Dutch rather than uh, French painters. He did meet a few. But he did go to Barbizon, and he was very much influenced by Millet. And many of Lieberman's works from the 1870s well into past the turn of the century reflect Millet's, um, you know, kind of ennobling images of the French peasant. Uh, Americans are probably pretty familiar with Francois Millet because he was extremely popular in the United States at the time he was painting, and a number of wealthy American collectors uh, did purchase Millet's, and they're in a number of museums throughout the United States. His most famous painting, perhaps, is The Gleaners, showing peasants stooping down, collecting what was left after a harvest. It's kind of like uh, rag pickers or um, homeless soda bottles today, picking up the trash of others and then trying to resell it or reuse it. So Lieberman was very much impressed and affected both aesthetically uh, and even on a basis of the idea of the peasant being ennobled um, with Millet. Uh, so he spent five years in Paris, and while he was there, he traveled regularly to the Netherlands. Uh, he had a real affinity for the Dutch. He felt their social services were unparalleled. Uh, they took care of their own, from orphanages to old age homes to schools, uh, just to the way society was organized. It was uh, more liberal, certainly, at that time in the 1870s and 80s and 90s than Germany was. And he really admired the Dutch. He admired their work ethic. Uh, and he admired the country. He had an affinity for this kind of flat, gray landscape. So many of Lieberman's paintings, if not the majority of them, are scenes from Dutch life, whether uh, urban scenes from Amsterdam or country scenes, Dutch peasants, uh, Dutch orphans. Um, he did a wonderful uh, Dutch orphanage. Um, that it, He did several versions of it. That's uh, one of the star paintings, the period of the 1870s and 1880s, uh, Dutch old age home. Now, these themes, you would think, okay, that's all right. But at the time, they were considered to be totally off the charts. These are not pictures that people would want in their living room. They would want flowers or landscapes or history paintings or religious paintings. But paintings of lower classes, of peasants, of orphans, of the old age uh, men sitting, kind of staring blankly into space, these were not edifying pictures. So Lieberman was dubbed the apostle of 
ugliness. <laughs> and uh, he was labeled a socialist because he was painting peasants, although technically the socialists would be painting workers and proletariat. But um, the Germans, who were rather conservative when it came to art, and certainly the critics at the time were in the mainstream publications, just felt that Lieberman's work was really too French, too socialist, and basically ugly in its subject matter and rather um, treated in a way or painted in a way that seemed to be unfinished. So he got lots and lots of criticism, which he actually, on one level, he, he disliked intensely, and another he was happy for because he continued, despite all this, to sell paintings. Uh, and the people that really liked Lieberman's works uh, tended to be the intellectual classes and museums, uh, museum curators and museum directors who saw Lieberman's affinity to uh, 17th century Dutch art of the age of Rembrandt. Uh, Lieberman was also an extraordinary draftsman and, and printmaker. And so museum directors in particular uh, admired Lieberman's work if the public initially did not and certainly the critics. Now, you've, you've talked a lot about the major themes of his work. Did this change over time? Um, did he move on to other mm. themes later in his career? I know he painted for a very long time. Or did he stay true to this sort of model um, or this type of painting? That's a good question. That's a good question because Lieberman for at least three decades of his working life, and Lieberman, by the way, and that's why the, the book that I wrote took a bit of time because he lived to be 87, and he was – very much in the mode of, as I said, a good bourgeois who got up every morning, 8 o'clock, and began painting as you would go to the office or I would go to the university or wherever, um, Lieberman started painting. So he has a, an enormous body of work, both oil paintings and prints and graphics. He would often make many sketches in preparation for a painting. He averaged about uh, it varied from year to year, but about uh, between 20 and 30 paintings a year. So you count that over a long period of time, and that can add up. And there's a huge two-volume catalog resume of his oil paintings. But the themes initially were the themes that I just described. Um, weavers, shoemakers, cobblers, orphans, uh, scenes of peasant life in primarily in the Netherlands, in Holland. He he would go to a few artist colonies that had sprouted up uh, along the Dutch coast uh, with fellow artists. He spent his honeymoon, he took his wife on their honeymoon <laughs> to one of these artist colonies, so I would call it a working honeymoon, <laughs> uh, but that was Lieberman, you know, he was always working. And so those themes prevailed, I should say, through the turn of the century. Around the late 1890s, and then into the first decade, second decade of the 20th century, Lieberman seems shifted to art that we would more usually associate with the French Impressionists. He did uh, beautiful light-filled harbor scenes of Hamburg. Hamburg was kind of his second adopted city after Berlin. He spent a lot of time in Hamburg. He was very friendly with the museum director there, a famous uh, museum director who really put Hamburg's art on the map, Alfred Lisch. And Lischvar commissioned him to do a number of scenes of Hamburg life, including a portrait of its mayor. And he painted um, beautiful open-air scenes of country houses. And so his art became less brown, gray, beige predominant tones and more very light-filled. He, he did a lot of sports. He himself was an accomplished horseback rider. Uh, he loved watching polo, tennis, all you might call these sort of upper-class sports of the time. And he admired Degas and Degas' work with horses. And so he did a number of horse paintings, um, sports paintings, tennis, and so forth. And so his art became much lighter more, you might call it, bourgeois in its subject matter, less concerned with the peasant and the um, rural countryside. So I would say that is the definite shift that takes place after the turn of the century. Uh, the other shift is that he did a lot more portraits as he became more well-known. And 
that's another very interesting aspect of Lieberman that he, you know, it's a veritable who's who of German intellectual and cultural life and military and political life to a certain degree uh, from the period of the 1890s through uh, the early 1930s. Uh, he painted and drew Einstein. He drew uh, and painted a portrait of uh, von Boda, who was the director of all the Berlin museums, and there's a Boda Museum currently in the Museum Island in Berlin today, named after him. Uh, he painted Paul von Hindenburg, the famous World War One general, uh, in the 1920s. So you see a veritable who's who of Germany in his many, many portraits uh, that he got a pretty handsome sum to do. So Liebermann was one of, by the turn of the century, one of the high-priced artists. Um, he could live very comfortably from his art, even though he did get a large inheritance from his family, including the house, the family house that was literally right adjacent to the Brandenburg Gate. Today, it had been bombed in World War II. Uh, they rebuilt it as sort of an office cultural center, and it's called the Liebermann House. But Liebermann, when he was living there, uh, with his wife, and he had one daughter. He got married in the 1880s, and they had one daughter. Um, he would tell people, well, if you want to come to visit, just go through the Brandenburg Gate and turn left. <laughs> <laughs> so that was uh, his address, a very important and prestigious address on the Paritzer Platz. Um, you mentioned so. earlier his relationships with other artists, but I'm wondering if you could spend a little more time talking about that. How... Um how was he received in that community being from a, a wealthier family? Um, was there resentment or rivalry? Did he have a, a rival um, or was he a guy that everybody sort of got along with? Um, how did he sort of fit into well, that scene? Well, you know, it's interesting because most, you're right, most of the artists that he associated with did not come from wealthy families, although surprisingly there were a number of what I would call maybe not super wealthy, but certainly middle-class, educated uh, men. And we we're talking about men, although Lieberman, though very patriarchal, very Victorian in his attitude about family life and so forth, uh, did encourage women uh, in the profession, particularly uh, very gifted women like Kita Polvitz, who he was very friendly with. Um, and, but most artists didn't come from the background that he did. But he seemed to get along with them more on the basis of their attitudes towards what constitutes good and bad art rather than their economic class. I mean, he bonded with people who were like him saying, you know, German art institutions and German painting in general uh, needs to get out of, you know, the Middle Ages, so to speak, needs to deal with the modern world. And artists who had that attitude uh, were his allies. And so he became instrumental in leading art associations or belonging to art associations uh, that espoused those values. So he was a member. He lived after he lived in Paris. He moved to uh, Munich, uh, again, where he lived about five years, and he befriended a whole range of artists there. And Munich was kind of the cultural center and the art center uh, throughout much of the 19th century. The uh, Bavarian king, the first Ludwig, Ludwig I, uh, wanted to make what he called um, Munich to be the Athens on the Spray, the great cultural center uh, buying Paris. So a lot of artists and a lot of foreign artists were attracted to Munich. And Munich had a wealth of artists groups, associations, it had a very fine academy, uh, it had international art exhibits that were held, uh, and this was, again, just around the time of German unification. And, of course, there was this rivalry between the Prussians and the Bavarians, and that continued throughout the period that Liebermann lived. But Liebermann uh, befriended a whole host of artists, but, again, they tended to be the more progressive artists. He joined an organization that was founded in the 1890s, uh, the Munich Secession, and this was a group of artists who protested the way uh, the academy and the more traditional art associations would hold exhibits. Uh, what you had, and this was true throughout Europe, including France and Germany, uh, was that you had more and more artists who wanted to become professional artists, uh, but the market was kind of limited how many people would buy these paintings. Um, you had a shift in patronage from the church and the state 
to middle-class uh, entrepreneurs who wanted to appear cultured. Their tastes tended to be more traditional. And so the question was, where would be the market for some of this modern art? And the modern artists felt that they weren't well served with the traditional academies and the traditional salons. And so you had breakaway organizations start to proliferate, really beginning, I would say, with the Salon de la Fusée in Paris in the 1860s, and then, of course, the first Impressionist show that was held at a dealer, not at a salon, but at a dealer's gallery in Paris in 1874, that first Impressionist show. And so, beginning in the 1870s, you have this proliferation of uh, art groups, and this included other uh, groups in Germany, and they were known as the secession. They were seceding from the larger organization, and they tended to be more progressive artists, though they weren't all super modern. I mean, you look at many of their works, and they look fairly traditional, but for their time, they seemed to be um, painting subjects, whether contemporary life, uh, whether social classes that heretofore had not been painted in a Way that was either not anecdotal or patronizing. Um, and so they started these new organizations. Uh, the, the Munich Secession was the first. And then Lieberman, after being in um, Berlin, he went back to, um, uh, sorry, when he was in Munich, then he got married, went back to his hometown, Berlin. And there, too, he associated with artists. Um, and the more famous ones in Germany were Lotus Corinth, Max Slavo, Fritz von Uda, uh, all of whom were part of the Munich secession. And he encouraged, particularly Slavo and Corinth, he said, well, you know, Berlin is becoming an important capital of now a united Germany. There's a lot of money here. Uh, there are a lot more opportunities. It's uh, less conservative on some level in terms of um, the overwhelming picture of Catholicism that, you know, was very important in Munich, not so important in Berlin. So he invited and told uh, these artists, come to Berlin, you'll do pretty well. And it was true. Uh, Corinth and Slavo came to Berlin. They, along with Lieberman, were the founders of the counterpart organization, the Berlin Secession, that uh, was founded in 1890. Eight ninety nine and became really the most important alternative artist association, uh, having many many members. Yeah, there were sort of formal members and associate members and and, and artists who then would exhibit. Uh, very important the first decade of the twentieth uh, century uh, into the first world war. Uh, then there were some factions and it got divided. But I would say that first decade of the twentieth century was instrumental and Lieberman was the president of the Berlin Secession and really the leader of the organization. And Lieberman was kind of, you could say, the face of modernism uh, for Germany uh, circa 1900. Um, and good, this this transitions to something I really wanted to ask. Uh, Lieberman, obviously, <laughs> as you mentioned, painted for a long time. Um, so he saw a lot of political changes in Germany from unification to World War One to the rise of Nazism, which we'll talk about at the end. Um, was he political? Um, was he engaged? How, or did, did events like World War I have significant impacts on the way he thought or the way he painted or um, who he aligned himself with? Right. That's an excellent question because Lieberman, in a political party sense or being active politically, was not. He really was, I would say, a cultural politician. His politics really focused on culture. He believed in uh, – he, he wasn't adverse to the idea of a, a monarchical state. After unification, um, he probably voted – there were, a, as some of your listeners may know, um, they had a parliamentary system in the sense that – you didn't have two or three political parties, big umbrella-type parties, but you had a proliferation of political parties uh, ranging from right to left. You had very, very conservative parties, uh, Prussian aristocrats, 
uh, landed gentry and the like often belonged to those more conservative parties. You had a nationalist party that was allied with Bismarck and unification. You had a Catholic center party that usually received about 20% of parliamentary votes at any given election, and there were frequent elections for parliamentarians. You had the Social Democratic Party that briefly was outlawed, uh, but then was reinstated. That was the Marxist Party, and that was considered the party at the time of the left. And you had a progressive Democratic Party, and that was the party that Lieberman usually voted for. He was what we would call a, a liberal, a 19th century liberal, believing he believed in free markets, free speech. He was very, that was his, I would say, if he had a religion, it was the idea that there has to be total freedom, freedom of expression. And any time that would be cur- curtailed, he would speak up, he would sign petitions and the like. So in terms of politics, he was aloof from the nitty-gritty of politics, but he was very attuned to any kind of encroachment of free speech or cultural censorship. And there were several instances when during the monarchical imperial period, particularly the Wilhelmine period from 1890 to the First World War, when the German emperor uh, was feeling, uh, you might say, sowing his oats, the last German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm or Emperor William II, uh, thought to him thought himself to be pretty much an expert in everything, <laughs> and he would interfere in all kinds of things that usually in micromanage usually things would be left to other groups. And so, for example, when there were art exhibits and he would go to them and didn't like what he saw, he would say, "Get rid of these." Or he'd go into the museum and he'd see some modern art, including that of Lieberman. This is what he called gutter art. This is art of the gutter. This is not elevating, ennobling. And he would make these pronouncements all the time. And there were some laws that were attempted to be passed um, ostensibly over pornography, but they slid into notions of free speech. And Lieberman was at the forefront of signing a whole bunch of petitions. Uh, this is a rather obscure um, episode in German history, though it's been written about, called the Lex Heinze, um, where Lieberman said, no, we have to uphold freedom of speech and freedom of um, assembly and all the kind of guarantees we think of in the First Amendment of our Constitution. These were things Lieberman believed in. So Lieberman and the emperor living down the street from one another, so to speak, uh, weren't the best of friends. Uh, Kaiser Wilhelm thought Lieberman's art was just horrible. Lieberman thought the Kaiser was pretty horrible. Um, The Kaiser, at the turn of the century, decided to build a whole um, ensemble of statues commemorating his ancestors on the street known as the Siegesallee Street of Victory that commemorated Germany's winning of the three wars of unification. So at his own expense, the emperor had the 32 groupings of statues lining uh, the Siegesallee or this Avenue of Victory, and he inaugurated this and then gave a dedication speech uh, around the turn of the century where he said, you know, I most emperors and royalty, they'll buy paintings and art objects and they keep it in their castles and palaces. Nobody gets to see them. But here I'm spending my money and I'm actually creating public art for the edification of the German people. Uh, and art should ennoble. It shouldn't bring down to the gutter as what one sees so often nowadays. So this was a direct uh, criticism, really, of Lieberman and the kind of art that Lieberman represented. Lieberman, who had a rather sardonic sense of humor, uh, had a studio that overlooked the Siegesallee because his house was right near the Brandenburg Gate. He said, well, I have to look out at these statues every day. I can wear kind of blue goggles or sort of obscure glasses, but it's really a problem to have to look out at these awful statues every single day. Um, so <laughs> the two of them, there was no real love lost uh, between the two. And when it was the time to celebrate Emperor William's 25th year on the throne in 1913, just a year before the First World War, and it would be 
around too many more years after that. Um, he refused to allow all the other art associations were going to have special exhibits and the like, but he refused to allow the Berlin Secession to commemorate his uh, 25 years. So this went on repeatedly, um, including the fact that although there were Liebermanns in the National Gallery, the major museum in Berlin, those were not purchased officially by the commission that would acquire paintings, a kind of acquisitions committee, but they were donated by private donors. That would be the only way that Liebermann's pictures could enter uh, a Prussian museum during the time of uh, the imperial period and Emperor William's rule. And uh, So that's another level. And uh, Liebermann's World War One experience? Did he have yeah. one? Did he draw a painting? Well, this is so in- very interesting with with uh, the outbreak of World War One. There was an initial, uh, when war was declared, the emperor came out on the balcony of his palace and say, I don't know any political parties anymore. I just know Germans. But the idea was Germans have, you know, bickered. You had the fact that Germany was relatively recently unified after centuries of independent principalities. You had divisions, class divisions, wealthy, poor socialists, conservatives, party divisions, you had religious divisions, Protestant, Catholics. And so the war with this common enemy abroad was to unite all Germans. So the Kaiser goes on the balcony at the beginning of World War I and says, you know, I know no Germans. I know no political parties. I just know Germans. Liebermann, like so many other Germans, were taken up with this patriotic idea. And Liebermann himself initially, at least the first year, year and a half of the war, was extremely patriotic, and he had actual very close connections to the center of power because his he had one daughter, and the daughter married the, you might call him the secretary or the assistant, to the current German chancellor at the time of the First World War. The German chancellor, his uh, name was Betemann Holweg, and his assistant was named Kurt Rietzler, who had been uh, a government official from Munich, Catholic, but fell in love with Liebermann's daughter. And during the war, 1916 um, or 17, I'm trying, trying to remember which year, but I think it was 17, uh, they got married. And there are a number of letters that actually have been recently found and published, kind of love letters and other letters that were written between Liebermann's daughter and Kurt Rietzler during the war. Now, Rietzler was interesting in the sense that he kept a diary of decision-making during the war, and so he had a real ear to what was going on uh in Germany, what was the thinking of the military, of the, of the civilian government. And most Germans initially felt this was a war, you might say, of t- two civilizations, the French-British versus Central European history, culture versus civilization. Even Thomas Mann, the famous writer, uh, felt that you know, the Germans have a deeper culture, a more profound culture, and that when the war is over, this culture would be really, in a sense, predominant throughout Europe. And so there were a lot of writings along those lines during the initial year or so of the war. Now, there was a broadside, a little publication that Lieberman uh, contributed to during the uh, first two years of the war. It was called Kriegszeit or Wartime. And Lieberman uh, made about 27 sketches for that wartime publication. And so in the early days, he was very much pro-war. Uh, in fact, the emperor even awarded him a kind of honorific uh, medal, uh, Red Eagle of the third class during the war. And Lieberman said, You know, until now, I have been unsullied by Prussian medals, but he was pretty proud, I think, to have received it, even though it seemed to be a bit uh, belated, because in the end, Lieberman was a patriot. He was a German patriot, uh, but he was not a chauvinist, but he he was proud of his country, you, you could say. But then, as the war became longer, resources were draining, um, People were coming back home wounded, maimed. Food shortages began to emerge. Liebermann saw that the war was not 
what it had initially seemed to be. Even though he had belonged to an organization during the war made up of generals, of government officials who would come together fairly regularly and discuss uh, the war and what it was doing to German society. But I should say by the last two years of the war, he became disillusioned. And even the journal, the publication, um, basically closed down and a new publication, it was published by Lieberman's art dealer uh, called Bilderman. That was a much more anti-war, more pacifist uh publication and Lieberman's artwork in the last couple of years of the war reflected that. Lieberman himself, he had with his own money, proudly he said, had uh, built a summer home in uh, the Wannsee. This is a lake outside of Berlin where a lot of the wealthy Berliners would spend summers. And during the war, Lieberman spent quite a bit of time at the Wannsee painting, uh, kind of retreating, you might say, from the turmoil of the war. But he also, during that time, planted and dug up his garden, which was an amazing garden, dug it up to plant cabbages and potatoes because of wartime shortages. So there's some paintings of his Wannsee uh, home showing the, the wartime garden. Uh, but he didn't overtly paint a lot of wartime scenes or soldiers. Uh, he, of course, was too old to en enroll and enlist in the war, uh, though his colleague, Max Flavo, did go, even though he was overage, he did go all the way to the French front. And Flavo, unlike Lieberman, was much more of a pacifist early on. Uh, Corinth, on the other hand, was more chauvinistic. So the artist's politics really did range from rather conservative nationalist all the way to pacifist and uh, socialist. We tend to think of the anti-war artists more of the generation that comes after Lieberman, both aesthetically and also in terms of age, the German expressionists who began that movement uh, around 1905 and then throughout the first two decades of the 20th century. Uh, many of those artists tend to be more leftist, some even communist uh, socialists, uh, but Lieberman was never a socialist and uh, tended to be more nationalist than uh, than not. So that was his wartime, but he was very concerned at the end of the war when the Kaiser was forced to to abdicate, and there was a lot of street fighting, particularly among radicals, around the Brandenburg Gate. There were cannons set up. Uh, there were marches all the time. I mean, Lieberman could watch German history just by looking at his window, because where he lived was sort of the center, and frankly, it still is, uh, the center of Berlin, where a lot of political rallies, it's sort of the equivalent of our mall, uh, where a lot of rallies, a lot of political um, uh, debates, you name it, happen. So he was very concerned. He wasn't sure what the future would hold. But he was a Democrat, and he was hopeful that after the German emperor was forced to abdicate, after Germany um, became a republic, that there would be a more democratic system of which he would be very much a part of. And what's ironic is that because Germany was forced to create a republic that not everybody liked, uh, Lieberman, who was somewhat of an outsider, even though he made a lot of money from his paintings and was um, prominent in cultural circles before World War One, at after World War One, Lieberman really became an insider in the Weimar Republic because now the cultural institutions had a shift of personnel. A number of the conservatives would either retire or be forced out of positions in museums and art academies, and kind of new blood would come in. But Lieberman, in a way, served as a kind of link between the old and the new. He was progressive under the old regime, and yet he was uh, a patriot of sorts. He got this medal from the emperor. And so Lieberman was asked to become president of what had been a very conservative art academy um, after World War I. So in 1920, Lieberman was appointed, and he should have been retired by now because he's already in his 70s, uh, but he was appointed president of the Prussian Academy of Art, uh, a job that he held in while he was continuing to paint prolifically in the 1920s, a job he held until 1932. 
So his life continued to be very, very active. And in that position, he was to represent kind of, you might say, the cultural diplomacy of the Weimar Republic. We tend to think of Weimar in the 1920s, uh, very avant-garde. You think of cabaret. You think of um, German expressionist painting. Uh, you think of um, new film avant-garde cinema, uh, Weimar culture more broadly, very, very avant-garde, all of that true. But Lieberman was trying to represent a kind of middle ground between conservatives who felt this culture was trash and the radicals who felt people like Lieberman were, you know, buying into this corrupt system. Lieberman was really, I would call, a centrist, a moderate, a Democrat. Uh, and that was a hard position to be in in a time period where you had economic dislocation due to hyperinflation, due to the uncertainties following the Treaty of Versailles and Germany's economy. Uh, you have political radicalism ranging from the growing Nazi movement on the far right to the communist movement on the left. So Lieberman was trying to steer kind of middle ground as president of the academy, but he was in the forefront of all sorts of cultural debates that took place in that period. Yes, and I, and I if I remember correctly, Max Lieberman died in 1935. Um, so he didn't Correct. see the whole, you know, the, the end game of Nazism. Um, but how, how at the end of his life did the rise of Nazism um, impact him? Obviously, I'm sure it was deeply personal. Um, I know they probably Absolutely. threw his art out once they came to power. Um, but how did he see the rise of Nazism um, at the end of his life? And did it impact his fa How did it impact his family? Oh, it, it had a huge impact. First of all, it was already by the end of the 1920s, certainly into the 1930s, that you saw the, the, the rise of the right. Uh, the Nazi party, you know, was kind of a minor party. But then after the Depression hit, the numbers of Nazis in Parliament increased incredibly. And there's a there's a famous picture that I include in the book showing uh, Lieberman leaving a polling booth uh, in 1932 when the Nazis, you know, gained incredible amount of power. They had they got about 33 percent of the of the popular vote. So Lieberman saw this with dismay, as you can imagine, that uh, the Nazis were virulently anti-Semitic. They saw Lieberman as the poster boy for all the kind of art that they despised, Impressionism, Expressionism, Modernism in general. Uh, several of Lieberman's paintings were removed from museums and put into shows. The most famous show was the Degenerate Art Exhibit of 1937. It turned out his work was not shown there, but it was shown in precursors to that show. Uh, once the Nazis came to power, he was... He resigned from the uh, presidency. He had already resigned from the presidency of the academy, but he was still in the academy. But then he resigned from the academy to court. Uh, he would have been fired in any case. And a, a number of Jewish government officials were let go because of civil uh, laws, civil service laws prohibiting Jews from being in any uh, government position. So Lieberman saw the rise of Nazism. Again, he saw that when uh, the Nazis marched in jubilation after Hitler became chancellor in January of 1933, and there was a huge torchlight parade, uh, Lieberman supposedly said, well, I cannot devour as much as I want to puke. <laughs> he just really, of course, hated the Nazis viscerally, and it was a, a mutual feeling on both sides. So Lieberman was now a persona non grata. He luckily, on one level, did die in 1935, but it, there was a big disruption to his family. His son-in-law was not Jewish, but married to a Jew. He, he was rector of Frankfurt University. He would be fired from his job. And his uh, living in Frankfurt, so the Liebermans now fairly old, um, you know, were pretty lonely. And uh, it was it was very hard. He he really his health declined precipitously. And he was already old, but precipitously at the end, 1934, 
34, 35. He's still painted. There's his last two pictures were painted literally just uh, weeks before his death in February of 1935. He was buried um, in Berlin, and you can still visit his grave. But it was a small funeral because non-Jews, if they were uh, at any kind of event or celebration or commemoration, or in this case, a funeral of a Jew, they would be monitored by the Gestapo, and then they would be probably questioned. A few brave souls who were not Jewish attended the funeral, such as Kate Kollwitz uh, and a number of artists and critics. Uh, so he was buried. He, you know, he kind of went into obscurity, though there was a uh, memorial exhibit of some of his works at the Jewish uh, Museum. That was the only place allowed uh, to have exhibits in 1936, a year after his death. Now, his son-in-law and daughter emigrated to the United States in 1938, and they wanted Lieberman's wife, who was again in her 80s, to come. She kept hemming and hawing. Uh, she lost her house on the uh, Brandenburg Gate site. They lost their Wannsee Villa as well. And there were many people who were trying to sponsor her in Sweden and in the United States. Ultimately, she was too old to leave and she was about to be deported to concentration camps, or I should say extermination camp in the East in 1943 when she committed suicide on her way to concentration camp at the about the age of 87, I believe. So it was a very sad ending to a woman, uh, Lieberman's wife, who was a very attractive woman. It was kind of in a semi-arranged marriage of family relationships, um, very vivacious and uh, a very sad end. So her, her daughter came to the United States with her husband, and they settled in the New York area and uh, brought with them a quite a sizable collection of Lieberman's work because that was going to be the other problem. Uh, after Lieberman died, they did a very good inventory of his collection, uh, but I would say about a third of his work to this day is unaccounted for. It surfaces from time to time on the auction market, uh, and there was a famous case of Gerlitt, the Nazi art dealer's son, who had hoarded the equivalent of $1.4 billion worth of artwork and would go from time to time to Switzerland over the years to, to sell, and that's how he supported himself. And he, when he was caught a few years ago, uh, tax officials found this hoard of art. The first painting to be restituted from this collection, and it's still an ongoing um, restitution process, was a Lieberman painting, um, two horse riders on the beach. Uh, and this was restituted to a descendant of um, one of the uh, patrons that uh, was killed in Auschwitz during World War II. So the afterlife of Lieberman's paintings is still around between uh, his growing reputation both in Germany and abroad, but also due to uh, the looted art. The Nazis were the biggest vandals of art and culture in history, and so it'll take many, many years really to unravel um, the afterlife of so many paintings, Liebermanns among them. So that's really what happened to his family. Um, his great-granddaughters both live in the United States. And uh, they live uh, in Long Island, and one lives in Maine, and she herself is an artist and has done a number of children's books and uh, illustrations. So the, there is still a kind of artistic thread that runs through the Lieberman family. Uh, well, so that, uh, that's uh, a, sort of a sad end to a fascinating uh, career. Um, but you have been talking for a long time. Um, so I want to just ask you one more thing before we let you go. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. I will. And like I said, I've had this lifelong interest in German art and particularly artists who, like Liebermann, uh, were not so well known in the English-speaking world. So I've had a continuing fascination with a colleague of Liebermann's by the name of Fritz von Uda. 
and he uh, was a Lutheran, born to a high Lutheran uh, official in the church, uh, but settled in Munich, and he and Lieberman were, in a sense, two outsiders, because uh, Lutheran and Catholic Bavaria, and a Jew and Catholic Bavaria, and religion did count in those days. And like Lieberman, he was interested in modern art and he was also worried about the rise of socialism in Germany as Germany became industrial. And so he wanted to bring Christ back to the people to win them away from socialism by painting pictures of Jesus in the home of peasants, Jesus at the home of the poor, Jesus in the home of dispossessed children. Again, like Lieberman, his art was considered, you know, radical socialist and much of it, if you see, is anything but. But I think, again, I'm fascinated by this sort of intersection of art and politics and how paintings can be read so differently depending on the political situation at the time. And so uh, Fritz von Uda has always kind of fascinated me, and so I'm working on a little bit of thinking about the issue of culture and socialism. Well, that sounds like a fascinating project. I hope we can have you back on the show when you write that book. Um, okay. <laughs> um, well, I think these artists are very interesting, and I think that one finds more now than one did. That we don't just have a Franco-centric view of modernism in the 19th and early 20th century. We see that Germany really played a key role in advancing modern art, modern design, modern architecture, and Lieberman one can really say without hesitation that he uh, was a, at the forefront of this um, development of modernism in Germany. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show today to talk about your book, Max Lieberman, Modern Art in Modern Germany. I'd certainly encourage all our listeners to uh, get the book and read it. It's not just for art lovers. It's very, very fascinating. Lots of stuff about um, broader trends in German history, um, so it's it's not just for all those art lovers out there. Um, Dr. Deshmik, thank you again. Um, I had a great time talking to you. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, I appreciate um, the I also, podcast. I also want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>